Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Today, we have the pleasure of hosting Stacey Martinet, the Vice President of Marketing Strategy and Chief Communications Officer at Adobe. With a career spanning across media and marketing, Stacy has had an incredible journey from her time at the New York Times, where she was part of the team that launched the company's first social media strategy, to her role as Chief Marketing Officer at Mashable, where she expanded the company's global brand and audience reach, turning it into a massive media property. During her tenure at Adobe, Stacy has been a driving force in shaping the company's reputation and fostering its growth. A well-respected leader in the industry, Stacy has received numerous accolades, including being named to Folio's Top Women in Media as a Corporate Visionary and PR Week's 40 Under 40 list, in addition to being a board member of New York's Women in Communications and a key member of the Adobe Women's Leadership Council. In today's interview, we'll be exploring Adobe's suite of innovative AI tools, all of which aim to revolutionize creative work and digital marketing while prioritizing commercial safety, copyright, and minimizing harm and bias. We'll also discuss Adobe's collaboration with large language models like ChatGPT and the Content Authenticity Initiative, which aims to ensure transparency in content creation. So without further ado, please enjoy this insight insightful and engaging conversation with Stacy Martinez. All right. Hello and welcome back to the Frictionless Marketing Podcast. This is Paul Dyer, CEO of Lippy Taylor. Lippy Taylor is a digital communications agency that has been named an agency of the year by many different organizations over the last several years. We specialize in helping brands revitalize their relevance with a frictionless approach to earning brand growth. Now, with that, I would love to turn our attention here to our esteemed guest today. Stacy, thank you so much for joining us. Paul, thank you for having me. I've uh I've known your work uh, and your agency for a long time. And so um I admire what you do and how you keep innovating. So I'm excited to be here. Well, I mean, first of all, thank you for that. Second of all, I love our our entry point here being innovating and continuous innovation because it does feel like it's a bit of an understatement today to say that everybody's talking about AI. Like we now have a point where AI itself is probably talking about AI. So <laughs> everybody plus is talking about AI, but you of course have had a front row seat to its development at Adobe and have unleashed some cutting edge AI tools, you know, from Adobe yourselves. We would, I mean, can we just start with a general overview from you of of what this time has been like for you, for Adobe, kind of your decision-making process to go all in on AI, and what does that evolution look like? You know, AI, it's it's funny to think about because you can't log in, pick up a paper, turn on a TV without reading about generative AI today. But, you know, we've all been living and working with AI in some way for the last decade. Um, And then Adobe... We have an artificial intelligence and machine learning framework we call Sensei, Adobe Sensei. The idea is to augment, speed up work, whether that's creative work, whether that's working in Adobe Acrobat with a PDF, or whether that's doing things like digital marketing. Um, And with significant advancements 
um, in artificial intelligence and things like large language models um, and how we build models, we've now entered this new era of generative AI, which is that AI makes stuff for you, right? Um, put simply. And so there's a lot of action um, around these large language models, which have to do largely with language, text, right? Um, what we can read and write. Um, and that's things like ChatGPT, uh, work Google's doing with Bard and other players. And then there's the realm of art and photography, illustrations, design. And, and that's where Adobe, Adobe comes in. Um, with Adobe Firefly, which we we just announced in uh, mid-March at our Adobe Summit. And Firefly is a, a family of models, starting with a first model. And it will be our, our content model. So where you interact with different forms of content, whether that's images, whether that's text effects on things like font, eventually video, mediums like 3D, um, it will become like a co-pilot. Um, and so right now in Firefly and a beta, you can type in a prompt. Like uh, I have a young, a young daughter. So a popular prompt for us is, uh, you know, unicorn riding on a beach. <laughs> and it'll bring up four different images that it generated. Um, or you could type in a text like Lippy Taylor. And you could do different styles. You could do Gothic, you could do modern, you could do floral, and it'll keep generating new options on that. And so this is really just scratching the surface of what's possible. Um, so ultimately, if you play that out, we think it can become this co-pilot. And, you know, we believe for creative professionals, right, it, it can spark ideas and or it can finish off projects more quickly and efficiently. And for communicators, folks like you or I, although I don't want to make any assumptions, <laughs> um, it can produce content quickly, um, knowing that we have to make volumes of content to fill our channels. Um, so what was really important to Adobe as we developed this was that we did it in a commercially safe way, which means our model was trained on content images from Adobe stock that were licensed from the people who made them, which is a little different than other models which go out and they scrape the whole web. And so it will not generate copyrighted issues, for instance. Another area where we spent a lot of time was on harm and bias because you type a prompt in mm -hmm. and anything could come up. And so there's a lot of work we had to do with the data to ensure that it was not delivering harmful or bias material, right? You want to type in a profession like a lawyer and get a diversity of people. Um, that's really important. So there's a lot of work to do that. Now, the reason we rolled it out as a beta is because this technology is changing rapidly. I mean, truly these models are evolving day over day. Um, and so we wanted community feedback. We wanted users to pressure test it and we wanted them to flag whether it was issues in the user experience or if they came across something that didn't make sense. Um, so sooner than later, this will come into our creative products um, and we're excited for that. But for now, um, it's a beta and we're rolling out 
different, different use cases of it. On the flip side, um, we also announced how we're, we're working with some of these other large language models like ChatGPT, Flan 5, to pull in that um, text to computer interface for things like marketing so that I could go into some of our um, digital experience tools, type in a question, and it would pull some initial information. So it doesn't replace a marketer, but it helps kickstart some of your ideas at a marketer. And it takes care of some of the searching for data or the matching up of different audience cohorts quickly. So you can spend more time on the strategy, the ingenuity, and then like coordinating the deployment. So of course, uh, you 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 walked right into the big debate, right? Which is, is uh, generative AI gonna sort of obfuscate or make irrelevant creative the creative disciplines, right? Our chief creative officer, Craig Elmley, is you know very very exactly with you. So it's a jumping off point. It's a source of inspiration, but it still needs human ingenuity, you know. Um, but this is a big discussion out there is, you know, is this going to take away jobs and opportunities and those kinds of things from people? Now, I have to say, in your opening there, you opened a lot of doors. And my job here is almost like kind of like <laughs> walks the doors. So I got to like now pick between all the all doors. All right. All right. Uh, I'm in suspense. Um, well, well, one of them was around this idea of obviously harm and bias material. And the reason why it's interesting to me, first of all, it's great that you and Adobe are, are doing the responsible thing and how you're sort of shepherding the application of generative AI. But, you know, I judge awards, as I'm sure you've done and lots of us have done. And, you know, we, we there was a there was about an 18 month period there where every award show had some version of a company saying, we've looked at all of the image libraries in an industry and realize they're not representative. And therefore we've produced a new library of representative images to add in for free, right? This happened in travel, this happened, we did it in dermatology, Vaseline did it. I think it's like, it's like it's happened all over the place, right? We all got to the same idea at the same time. So my question is actually, does that happen with AI? Does AI get to group think you know, like if we all were to give uh, similar prompts or if competitive brands were to work with generative AI in very similar ways, would it drive us in the same direction? It could. It could. And there and there's great concerns around that because it's going to train based on not just the data you put in, but how you think about structure that data and what you match it to. This is a very unscientific explanation. But we're, essentially, a very we're a very unscientific <laughs> audience here, so this is perfect. So that's it. So what we've done here at Adobe, and, and this was well before generative AI became, you know, the topic du jour, is we have an AI and ethics committee that looks across a few factors. Um, and one of them is inclusion. And we have diverse people, people of different backgrounds, ethnicities, genders on this committee so that before things are going into product, before the model gets too far, we can pressure test them for that group think you talk about. And so we're not continuing the biases in the next four decades that we've had as a society for the last four decades. 
And that's really, really important to do before these models get too advanced. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting point, of course, in the in light of the current news cycle, right, where we've had um, a lot of luminaries and executives in the tech industry have signed this uh, sort of letter to OpenAI and others asking them to pause development of generative AI. And uh, of course, there's there's perspectives on both sides, but um, can you shed a little light on that topic for people? And if you ha are able to weigh in on a side, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, I mean, I think that was that open letter was largely geared towards large language models. So, you know, words, text um, and chat, because there's been significant, right, um, significant in innovation in that over the last few weeks even. And there's been some pretty weird and in some cases scary results. Um, so when you look at that, I think people are concerned about what becomes fact, right? If a robot says it does, it become true because the output of this text is done with such confidence that, you know, there's a lot of questions on what's real and what's not. Um, you know, for, for us, we think about like content authenticity and like, how do you know who made what? So for the Firefly model we built, we are building in content credentials. So you can tell, was this made by a human or was this made by a robot? So I do believe there is work to do for these large language models on how you can talk about, you know, where this content was generated from and what's the provenance. Um, but I think to your larger question of this letter and how do you take a pause, just I think we've learned throughout history you can't pause on innovation. There's no putting the genie um, back in the bottle, is there? You can't, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And so I do think, you know, the companies developing these, like Adobe, they can make a difference on what ultimately is produced and the societal impacts. And so for us, that's a focus on harm and bias. That's a focus on commercially safe, not taking copyrighted work. And then it's also a focus on content credentials. So people can tell what was made by a human and what was made by a robot. And then they can ultimately decide how they feel about it. Well, and you and you had another example with your AI and ethics committee. And and to go one step double click on your, your content authenticity point, so Adobe has been developing essentially a lie detector for deep fake content, right? And and sort of, um, I think there was actually a CBS Sunday morning segment on this, um, which is your content authenticity initiative. So can you just yeah. shed a little bit more yes. light on that? Yeah. So in 2019, um, Adobe um, came together with a few other industry leaders and developed the content an authenticity initiative. Um, we felt like just given the proliferation of digital media and fake news, that it was incumbent upon us as makers of tools like Photoshop that we do something responsible to help educate consumers on the information and content they consume. Um, but knowing that in order to make a real difference, it would take an ecosystem, right? It would take technology partners. It would take media companies ultimately camera companies at the point of capture for photography to have a trail of where the content was captured and where and how it was edited. And so we call that content credentials. And so we have that in products like Photoshop and that's what we're gonna bring into our Firefly model. 
Um, but there's now this content authenticity consortium of about a thousand organizations, whether that's the New York Times, the BBC, Canon. Um, and they're, you know, part of it is leadership in each area and what they can contribute. And part of that is coming up with an industry standard for these credentials. Um, and I think generative AI is a real inflection moment for where others can also adopt this notion of content credentials. And so uh, it, we did have a great segment on CBS Sunday morning, and they did use the lie detector. But I think it's more like a nutrition label, right? Because ultimately, it is the consumer's choice, right, to be educated about this. And so, you know, we can put the credentials in, but the people consuming news, I think it's important as a society that we are more and more educated in the news we consume, which is a change, I think, from when you and I started in these professions where you could assume that everything was verified by at least an editor or an editorial board. Whether or not you agreed with it was a different story. Right. And that, that's a great analogy there with the nutrition label. It's, um, it's almost like you're in marketing communications. Um, <laughs> so, it's my day job. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's interesting because you, you use the word Photoshop there. And there's, you know, there's, there's this really, I mean, the power of the brand of Photoshop, which has become the Kleenex the category, right? Kleenex defines tissues and Photoshop defines photo editing. Um, and yet, as powerful as it is, now we're also at this inflection point where there could very well be a societal backlash, an existential threat against this idea of editing photos. And there has been in some ways, you know, around um, truth and advertising and, you know, like those kinds of things. So how do you think about leveraging the most powerful brand and content, Photoshop. We Photoshopped it. It's a shorthand. How do you think about leveraging the power of that, but also being careful that you don't get swept away in the, oh, that was Photoshopped negativity? Yeah. I mean, it comes down to thinking about if you are a company as Adobe is that creates transformational technology, whether that was something as early as PostScript, whether that was creating digital publishing or Photoshop, <clears throat> there is going to be incredibly positive, innovative things people do with that, right? And people do that every single day. Um, and there will be people who either advertently or inadvertently do harmful things with technology. And we realize that and we accept that and we accept we have a responsibility. And that, that was actually the genesis of content authenticity and to get it into Photoshop directly. Because it can, you know, you can decide, was this edited? Who edited it? How did they edit it? And again, you can make a judgment on why and how you feel about that. So we do have a responsibility. I think it. It's one of those, you know, with great power comes great responsibility and nobody has more power in this discussion, you know, than Adobe. And um, so it's great to see that you guys are taking that as seriously as you are. Um, now you've, you've raised, you opened a whole new door here, Stacy. So, <laughs> um, so at one point in this conversation, you have referred to Adobe as a, um, like a productivity company, right? Mm -hmm. Work tools and productivity. Mm -hmm. And another, you've referred to it as creative studio. Also, you work with creative mm -hmm. professionals. And now you just said that you make transformational technology. 
Now we've had a bunch of companies on this call on this podcast that struggle with this, right? Like Spotify, are they a music company or a tech company? Right. Or you know, so what are you? Are you and who are you for? Is it are you are you a creative company? Are you a tech company? Are you a productivity company? What is Adobe? That's funny. We talk about this a lot. We talk about this a lot. Um, so you went right there. I mean, at the end of the day, we say we're a product company and we deliver products for creativity, for digital productivity and for creating digital experiences, right? Customer experiences. Um, so, I mean, yes, in that sense, we are a tech company, but I actually, cause my background's media, when I came to Adobe, I felt more akin to a content company, to a media company than a, than a tech company. And I think that's because of the heritage we have in creativity. And because of that heritage, I mean, Adobe has been around for 40 years, like 40 years is a long time for a, you know, a, a company in technology these days. Um, but because of that, we try and bring, and we do bring creativity to everything. So whether it is creativity, which is the new productivity in many ways, um, or how we think about our digital marketing products. Yes, we are providing deep analytical platforms, but we're connecting it directly to the content um, and to the creative. So, you know, I'm not really answering your question because our audience is everyone from individual creators to students to small businesses to the world's largest enterprises. And so we have an amazing breadth of global customers that we serve across our, our product suite. But but you are answering my question and you good. just said something so good. It felt flippant, but is this like, am I missing it? Is this actually like the, like the, the vision and mission and worldview is you said creativity is the new productivity. And I could not agree more and it does apply so nicely to everything that you bring to market. Is that is that actually your vision statement as it is, or was that really just a flippant statement? No, we think about that a lot because it's happening, right? I mean, and when you look at, I mean, the for for many of us who have been working um, in communications, marketing, and digital channels, you know, we saw where things were going. And I think, you know, the the events of the last three years with the pandemic just accelerated that so quickly. And so here we are, we're all working in some ways digitally, right? Forget if you work from home or if you're in an office, it's all digital, right? I mean, I'm sitting here in an office, but I'm on a Zoom with you across the country. And so with that in mind, it's the like the how we work is the productivity part, right? And whether that's an individual because you have to produce stuff quickly and digitally or as a team. And what makes the difference, no matter if you're a web designer, a communicator, you're putting together presentations for your boss, or you're, you know, you've got a side hustle. You're trying to make your website. You're trying to make Instagrams. Like it's the content. It's that creativity. And that needs to be as productive as possible because it's where we're spending so much of our time communicating is digitally through content. But I, I got to tell you, so every agency person who's listening and every freelancer who's listening says, I agree, I agree, I agree. You should reward me based on my creativity and my creative output. And yet the business wants to just pay them by the hour. 
right? How do we, so how do we get procurement professionals, our good friends in procurement, to agree that it doesn't matter if we spend a thousand hours coming up with a great idea or a half hour coming up with a great idea, it's the great idea that is, in sel- is itself valuable. Well, I think that's where we have to be more product productive within those hours, right? But, yeah. <laughs> but I do think you have you have a point. And I think actually reworking with procurement because not every agency is the same. We don't want them to be the same, you know? Like we need a strategic agency for certain things. Like we just want thinkers. We want people who know best practices. We want people who have done it before at different places. And then we want producers, right? We want partners in the field doing stuff. And then we need creatives. We need ideas. We need ideas. They need to augment our ideas. And those things are not alike. Um, And therefore they can't fit on the same rate card. Um, So we're actually having that conversation. Now we haven't gotten to like, what's the hourly versus the not, but I, I do think in the new world of marketing and communications, especially as they are blurring, there is a need to look at not just how we work, which is productivity, but the like what we deliver and what's the right model for that. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And as, as we're having, you know, we're getting questions about things like, would your agency go to a four day work week? Sure. If clients rethink right. value, <laughs> right? right? right. Uh, but I have to say, don't be surprised now if one of your agencies comes into a procurement meeting after this podcast. And <laughs> she said, creativity is a new productivity. Um, <laughs> All right. So so productivity and you, you you open the door a little bit about creative process as well. And, you know, you personally interviewed Aaron Sorkin about creative process. Am I right about this? You're right. I interviewed him about two weeks ago at our Adobe Summit event. Did you talk about that? <laughs> like what was what was the theme? What did you yes. take away? You yes. Know, what his perspectives on the, the how technology sort of intersecting yes. storytelling. Yes. Yeah, so we, um, at our event, we, you know, on day one, we show all of our product innovations and our vision for where the category of customer experience is going. And then on day two, we try and bring in luminaries, um, people who have been in the field or people who bring like a thought leadership to a topic. Um, And then we also want to bring in some fun. And so the conference talked so much about data and artificial intelligence. And I truly believe that those things are only enabling more story-led marketing, right? And so I really wanted us to talk about storytelling and the art of storytelling and what that means in a digital first world and what that means with AI. So who better than one of the most accomplished storytellers of our time, Aaron Sorkin. Also, I'm a huge fan of the West Wing. Um, So, you know, hashtag goals. but he did. It was funny. His first question to me, even though we chatted backstage, was, why am I here at a technology conference? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, because, you know, stories transcends technology. And, you know, I think what he expressed was both his skepticism around technology and maybe some anxiety mm-hmm. around what it would do and what it would replace. But ultimately, that because of technologies, it has made the production part faster, easier, augmented, right? On especially on film sets, like things you can do with digital graphics, etc. And the editing process has become faster, more productive. But 
it has not changed his writing or creative process, right? And I think that's that's back to that human ingenuity and where we agree with Aaron Sorkin. Like AI is not gonna write an award-winning television series because right. it's just taking things that have already been written and helping you with an idea. Well, it so might write Fast and Furious 19, for example. Maybe. Probably Maybe. they just do that, yeah. Maybe, yeah. but people love that and there's a market for that, so great. Uh, but, it, you know, it's not gonna write A Few Good Men. Right. So It's not so, gonna rewrite To Kill a Mockingbird for Broadway. Right, that's a great example. and. Um, it's amazing. I recognize how quickly we're coming up on our time here, but you know the you know this idea of storytelling, the intersection of storytelling and technology. Um, so you personally, your career path, you come from the New York Times, which was one of the first major media to really figure out this transition into the new world, transitioning off advertising dependency and into a reader first methodology, really owning technology in terms of the distribution, those kinds of things. And Mashable, which was, I mean, at its height, like the tech media outlet, right? Okay, so from there to Adobe. Now, everybody listening is either in PR, comms, marketing, or journalism. We're all seeing it all get disrupted, right? Whether it's because of AI, whether it's because of the shifting, uh, where the, the ad dollars are going, Google and Facebook's impact, all that kind of stuff. We all see it getting disrupted. So... You've been in some of the most interesting seats in the industry. Where do you think this is going? <laughs> I think it's on its way to a world where your owned and your earned channels are your crown jewels. Brands and agencies that support them have to be like newsrooms. That doesn't mean we make the news. There is more need and demand for news and publishers than ever before, right? Um, and quick digression on that. We've been doing a lot of work studying consumption of, you know, 18 to 24-year-olds. And, and what we found is they're actually consuming mainstream publications. They're just doing it via their friends or influencers in their feeds. So they're not going that directly, oh, my homepage is bookmarked but they still are looking to and trust those publications. And in fact, they trust them more because their friends share them. So there's still a place for, you know, quality, integrity, journalism, news, and entertainment. It's just coming to us differently through social channels, through, you know, people sharing like influencers. And so if you think about that and you actually think about what you said about the New York Times and what Mashable was really good about, is called direct-to-consumer. <laughs> yeah. And that's where I think marketing is going, which as a, you know, someone who's has communications in their background excites me because it's about the stories and it's about the truths of your product or your brand and like how you differenti differentiate. Now you just have to do that 24-7, right? And that's where that newsroom mentality comes in. And so on one hand, it's relentless, but on the other hand, I think it's freeing creatively because you don't just have one shot a year at a big Super Bowl commercial, right? Or one shot at a PR launch. You've got, you know, a hundred at bats. Not all of them are going to be a home run. That's okay. You got to try new things and you got to show up every day. Um, 
to be direct to your customers and win their hearts and minds every day. So that's the kind of the combination I see from my journey from New York Times to Mashable and now to Adobe, um, the commonalities. And again, I think things like generative AI actually can help that. They can help that pace. Um, and things like AI with data can get us the information we need faster and smarter to make better decisions. So I'm optimistic about it all. And I share your optimism and I share your worldview about owned and earned leading and paid and sponsored supporting. Um, and I think many people listening probably do as well. Although when it comes to down getting into the daily nitty gritty of how you execute, it gets complicated, right? Um, but I think from creativity is the new productivity, generative AI is the source of inspiration, owned and earned should be the area of emphasis and you need to be going direct to your customer. I mean, that feels like a, a manifesto right there. And um, it it's one that we agree with. And uh, I thank you, Stacey, for sharing so much um, insight, energy, and time with us here today. I think people are going to enjoy hearing this. Well, I hope so. And if anyone has any thoughts or ideas or disagreements, you can find me uh, on LinkedIn or Twitter. And thank you so much, Paul. I enjoyed this conversation and I hope we can do it soon. Again, do it again soon. Likewise. Thank you, Stacey. All right. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. And to learn more about us and our agency, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.